Good morning. I know on camera it looks like there's three people in here, but there are like thousands just back behind the camera view. Really want to appreciate, I want to welcome you all to our live streaming uh, attendance this morning, since that's mostly what it is, but uh, we do appreciate you coming. And also, I really want to just say thank you to the people that uh, come. I have no idea all what their circumstances are, how long it took them to get ready to get here, to get lights turned on and cameras turned on and instruments tuned and all of these kinds of things. And so I just really appreciate um, all of their involvement. And, and part of the decision, just real quickly, because I'm trying to once in a while let you know kind of what swirls around in my head, but part of the decision as to whether or not we close service or keep it open um, has a lot to do with whether or not people that are helping us put a service together feel like they can come out and they always have the option to decline. We try to make that very clear to them. And uh, for the most part, uh, people are just like, no, we'll be there. We'll figure it out. And so uh, really can't uh, thank you enough for, for helping us get there and do that. Um, you know, and a lot of the, the grid sort of that goes in my brain about what we do with weather and stuff has got to do more with timing than amount, just so you know. It's, could be three inches, but in the middle of the time where we'd be trying to get here and it'd make the roads messy and stuff, we might cancel. Um, but a foot the night before, um, hoping that everyone has enough time to dig themselves out in the morning. So that's the way we kind of go with that. So never win either way. And so I uh, just want you to know the next time, the next storm, I might offend you. You never know. You know, so we'll just see how it goes. Um, this morning, as we get into the scripture in John chapter 15, it's very important for us to remember uh, that Jesus is sharing final words with his disciples. So often we imagine at the end of our lives... What would we say to the people that mattered most to us when we were laying on our deathbed and they were all coming up close and huddling and, and we're getting those last words out? Just like a movie, you know, we'd have the most profound wisdom. We'd say the things that, that matter the most. But the reality is, is we do have a tendency to remember the last things that somebody said to us. And, and we want to make those times and those words count. And that's what Jesus is conveying to his disciples. He knows that the end of, of this phase of his life, because he knows he's going to live forever. He's God and he'll defeat death. But his earthly life in this phase is over in hours. And so everything he's saying to them is the thing that he wants it to resonate in their hearts and in their spirits after he's gone. And so these words are, are, are carefully chosen because he's the word of God. He's not just throwing random statements out there. And the impact is meant to really kind of churn up their souls and, and, and break up the hardened uh, ground in their hearts and remind them that what they're about to embark on, and they don't even know what awaits them yet, is that all of the words that he gave them will sustain them through all of this coming challenge and pressure. And in our text, it's verses 12 through 17. I just want to make two points and I'm going to spend most of my time on the first point and just a little bit of time on the second point. I just want to give you a heads up because I'm people too. Um, I think what will end up happening is you'll want me to have spent less time on the first point because it's uncomfortable because it was really uncomfortable to study through. And the second point we wish we had more time on because it's kind of controversial. It's fun to debate all these. I'm going to make statements. You're going to be, wait, what did you mean by that? Wait, come go back to that. I want to hear. So that's just the way it's going to be. Um, and uh, as we continue to study the scriptures together in the life of the church, um, we will 
unfold these principles more. Uh, but for the most part, I'll give it to the small groups to debate and go hours into the night, you know, about these things. Uh, but I want to make two points out of the text that we're studying from verses 12 to 17. And the first, before we get into it, is that uh, my encouragement to you as we study this is to find a deeper identity in the lordship of Jesus. Lordship, at least in my um, past few decades of being in, in church culture and Bible college and studying and everything, lordship is a loaded word that's been hotly debated. And uh, I, I am encouraging us as we study the scriptures together to find a deeper identity, find your own, you know, label over you in the lordship of Jesus. So what are we talking about? The uh, followers of Jesus early on were called Christians. And all that, that word doesn't show up in a lot of places in the New Testament. It does show up in a few places. And they were called Christians, which meant Christ ones. And a first century follower of Jesus, there was no ambiguity about whether or not they were all in or they were abandoning Jesus. We've seen this play out in, in the Gospel of John, right? We saw the crowds building, the popularity growing. And then when they heard what he was really about, when he started making statements they couldn't quite comprehend or digest, they said, we're out. This isn't for us. It, it wasn't much like we experience now where you can have a blend of, we're not really sure where people stand. Are they Jesus friendly? Are they true followers? Are they um, Jesus light to the extent that they see him as one of the, the great leaders or teachers or something? So we've got some Jesus philosophy, but we're also cool with Buddha and all these other kinds of things. There's a blend and a, you could have one foot in, one foot out, you know, in, at least in terms of our own um, uh, uh, appraisal of it. But in the first century church and followers of Jesus Christ, there was no ambiguity they were christ ones they they would see the actions they would hear the speech they would see the lifestyle and they would say you're one of his aren't you it was just obvious and christians have two markers that jesus is going to give us here in verses 12 and 13 of john 15 he says this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you greater love is no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. The first marker that Jesus would give us is they will know that you're with me. He said this a few chapters back. He said it um, when he said, by, by this will all people know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. So he says, this is my commandment to love one another. He uses two interesting words here. He says command, and then he also says as. All of this surrounding this word love. And if we think that Jesus is, is sort of like this helpful philosopher that just enhances our experience in culture today, think about how countercultural that statement is, is that love is commandable. Is commandable a word? Where are my English people? That he could actually tell us, go and do love. We would say that's not, it doesn't fit into our equation. You can't force somebody to love somebody else. Because why? We see love through the grid of human emotion. You either feel it or you don't. And if I stop feeling it, I can get out of it. I am justified to get out of it because I no longer feel it. Jesus says, no, this is my commandment that you love one another. 
And imagine the, the revelation, uh, the revelational concept this would be in our marriages and in our other relationships if it was rather than being so concentrated on what I feel like I'm missing or not experiencing that if there were a list of things I could do to show love even to the person who's not loving me back or doesn't seem to deserve it or any of those kinds of things. Imagine how it would be so life transforming if I saw love as the thing I get to do as opposed to where we're all obsessed as a culture, the thing I'm looking to receive how that would change things so jesus says this is a command that you would go and love as i have loved you see he's the demonstration of love what did he do he loved those who didn't love him back he loved those that rejected him he loved those that literally pulled the facial hair out of his cheeks he loved those who uh, beat his back. He loved those who hung him on a cross. He loved those who denied him while he was being dragged through uh, the city square. He loved them. So he says, as I have loved you, they didn't even fully comprehend the amount of love he was going to show. They've seen it demonstrated. They had their feet washed. They had him serve them and all these kinds of things. And they saw him do some amazing things and say some amazing things. And they were experiencing the beginning stages of this experiential love with Jesus. But they had no idea, really, what was about to happen and how that love would be on full display as he hung on a cross for their sins. So the first mark of a of a Christ one is that we would have that kind of love, that we would do that kind of love. And close to it is this word obey. We come to verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. There are some very straightforward statements in our little text here this morning that we will be tempted to kind of dig in and say, well, what does the Greek really mean on this? And what is the phrasing really trying to get across? And how did the first century Christian hear this? And, and that sort of thing and explain a way that he is saying what it says at face value. He says, love one another as I have loved you go and do this. And then he's also saying, you're my friends. If you do what I command you, I say, well, that's kind of the cart before the horse. And does that mean you only get to be his friend if you, if you Obey him. The rest of scripture, as we study faithfully every single week, uh, tells us that we don't earn this love because we obey him. That we don't go out and do and run and prove and all these kinds of things so that he would say, okay, you've done enough. Now I'll accept you. Now you can be my friend. What he's simply saying is what you and I would experience in our own lives. It's like, if you say you love me, but you don't do anything that pleases me or doesn't, you don't do anything that's close to my affection or my heart. How can I say that you're my friend? It's a simple matter of proof. Stated belief in Jesus without the markers of love, love towards his people and obedience to his will. Stated belief in Jesus without those things is simply a lie. So in verse 15, he says, no longer, this is important that he says, no longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father. I've made known to you. And this word servants, I think, is where we need to spend some time this morning, because it is going to be, I guess, controversial. I wish it weren't. Um, it, it doesn't seem to make sense that it's so controversial, but it is. And and there's some reasons for it, because servants actually uh, in the original language, uh, doulos, it's, it's translated often servant, but it's also translated slave. 
And uh, from what I understand, again, this is just sort of, you know, not my own study per se, but the English translators of our scriptures moved away from the use of the word slave every time they saw doulos or every time they saw this concept of being a servant because of its connotations. And that's not entirely wrong. I'm not saying that you have some kind of flawed Bible in your hands or something. It's just that there's a human um, hesitancy to say, are we sure we really want to say slave? You know, even the translators in the modern English times, they were afraid of, doesn't this, isn't going to strike uh, images of the uh, the British uh, slave trade or American colonialism going on and stuff and all the, the negative and painful and ugly aspects of human slavery. Are we sure we want to start saying that what Jesus is saying is that you are my friends if you do what I command you and I no longer call you slaves individually there, though the rest of scripture will call us that? Are we sure we want to use that word? So they move away from that. We see the word slave from time to time. But over 250 times in the scriptures, servant comes out. That concept is being like a drum being beat for us that we are servants of Jesus Christ. And over 40 times, slave is translated for us. And so I understand why we wouldn't want to necessarily walk around and say, hey, Brother, how's slave life going and all this kind of stuff? Like we we don't want to necessarily forget the fact that that word has all kinds of things that we should be aware of and in tune with. But at the same time, there is a mindset that we as followers of Jesus Christ start to think about the nuanced differences between what we think being a servant is and what we think being a slave is. In my mind, and I'm sure in many others' minds, a servant is somebody who's kind of employed, you know, somebody who might be able to take the job or keep the job, uh, leave the job whenever they want. They can just take the apron off and say, I'm done. A slave, in my mind, doesn't have that choice, doesn't have that option. And honestly, as we look out over the landscape of Christianity today, would we not think that one of the greatest challenges that we have in the church of Jesus Christ, in particular in America, is that we have a lot of quote unquote Christians that feel like they have a choice as to, do I serve God today or do I take care of me? Maybe I'll get around to serving God next week. That kind of thing. It's that servant kind of mindset that when I'm in it, I roll my sleeves up. But when I don't feel like doing it anymore, I can just punch out. I think also sometimes we uh, avoid the concept of that slave word uh, because we have this false sense of, of personal freedom. In our minds, we say it's not good for us in our hearts and even oftentimes in our public squares, we say we shouldn't have to answer to anybody. No one else should have the authority over us. And in America, we're great at espousing this, aren't we? Like we have full autonomy. We don't have to answer anybody, be what other people expect us to be. What do we do? We do you. You know, that's the thing. You do what you're going to do. You be who you're going to be. And that is the pinnacle of experience as at least it's sold to us in culture. We have this false understanding that apart from the quote unquote slavery of belonging to Jesus, that we're truly free to be who we want to be. But the scriptures teach us something other than that. Jesus had already told us back in chapter eight. He says, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul doubles down in Romans six. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey It's passions. 
There are a host of other scriptures we could put in here, in particular in Romans 6, which is a, a classic chapter to talk about the sinfulness of man. But the point is, is that we are not, apart from slavery from Jesus Christ, we're not free to be whoever we want to be. We either belong to him or we belong to our sin. That's what the Bible teaches. We are slaves in one of two directions. Lori Stanley Roloveld, who writes for Christianity Today, she wrote a brief article called, What Does It Mean to Be a Slave to Sin? And this is what she says in one portion of it. Slavery is serious, serious business. We recognize the outrage of it and the damage it causes everyone involved. Slavery is dehumanizing and repugnant. God wants this reaction from us in response to sin. He wants us to understand the power of remaining in our sinful state. Sin is also dehumanizing and repugnant. He wants our eyes open to the deception of our spiritual enemy that, that our spiritual enemy uses to keep us enslaved to sin that leads only to death. It's unmistakable from scripture that a true follower of Christ, when they sign up for lack of a better term, ter- term to follow Jesus, they are giving up their personal rights rather than being like complete, uh, 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 being assigned a job that I can punch in and out of hang the apron on or up or put it back on. Instead, it's a life of saying no longer. Even Paul says, I don't live for me anymore. The life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God. Now, you know, part of my job is to kind of keep an eye on the landscape and see the health of our church and how it compares to what we're hearing coming down the pike in the church of Jesus Christ and everything. What are the, what are the words that we hear so often as churches are trying to make the gospel of Jesus Christ more attractive and get more and more people to warm up to it? We throw out words like you can be free. You can be fulfilled. You can be unleashed. That's my favorite word that I can't stand. Uh, released and empowered. And you might be saying, or so you're saying you don't get any of those things in Christ, that you aren't free in Christ, that you aren't fulfilled in Jesus, that you can't be unleashed in the power of the Holy Spirit. No, all of those things are true. All of those statements are accurate in and of themselves, but it's the amount of emphasis we place because we know what people want to hear. That you can find the true you, the better you, you can improve and that Jesus is going to play the role of your life assistant or your life coach. He's going to be your trainer. And, and what do people do that are helping you achieve goals? They sit down and say, where do you want to be in six months, five years, 20 years? Lay out your retirement goals and let's see how we can get you there. You see, we've put Jesus in that role. So he's saying, you define for me what you want to, what you want to be and I'll help you get there. They say, of course, that God wants to fulfill your desires, your hopes, your dreams. This is why it's important for us to remind ourselves what the scripture says as it as it defines our relationship. The Bible uses the gospel uses very distinct language when talking about who we are in Christ. Remember last week, I believe it was we talked about how there are so many different metaphors and word pictures given to us to help us understand the richness of our life in Christ. And all of those things are true. We are sheep with a shepherd. We're a child to the father. We are 
uh, subjects to the king, where all of those different word pictures, a bride to the groom, all of those things that make us feel like, okay, that's the warm part. That's what I want to focus on. That's what I want to think about. This idea of being servant, slave thing, I don't really want to wrestle with that a whole lot. It sounds locked in. It sounds stifling. I was uh, doing some study with John MacArthur this week, and he uh, spends a lot of time on this word doulos in the Greek and wrote a book, uh, a book uh, simply called Slave. And, uh, and he points out, and I'll, we'll use an excerpt from it here in a minute, but he points out that the gospel uses slave language. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9, that we are a people for God's own possession. Paul says in Ephesians 6, to the bond servants, to the slaves, to the literal slaves that would have made up a good portion of most churches, that they were actual people who were in slavery. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You see, Paul wasn't hyping them up just to have their hearts broken by saying, if you follow Jesus, you can finally be rid of these jerks. You can finally get out from under this whip. He knew that their experiences might not change just because they decided to follow Christ. Instead, he says, put Jesus head, put Jesus face on that taskmaster, on that slave master and serve as though you're serving Jesus and not him. Rather than undoing the metaphor and rather than making them feel better about what their existence would be, he says, no, find purpose in it. And he, and he recorded it for the whole church so that they would all start to see themselves as, so if this is the way I'm supposed to treat Christ, how is that going to enhance my faith and my walk in him? I'm, I'm hoping to show in the little bit of time that we're going to be able to do this this morning, I'm hoping to show that all of this, though it's a heavy language, though it's a, it's seemingly, um, despairing, but it's really just because it's against our flesh and against the grain of our hearts, that it's really quite hopeful that the freedom that can be found is all in this language because we were purchased or we were redeemed from the slave market of sin. This is what first Corinthians six says. And I love in our youth building, we have this big kind of barcode on the wall that's painted on there. And I, I'm pretty sure if it's attached, this first Corinthians six passages is uh, referenced there. And this is what it says. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy spirit within you, whom you have from God? Here's the, here's the point. You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That's the image of the barcode that's painted on the walls because we were, we were bought with a price as we were removed from the slave, from the slave market of sin. It's like beep. The scanner went off and it said, yep, that's how much you cost. And Jesus says, I'll pay it. Get them out of that slave market of sin. Have, make them followers of me. We were made slaves unto righteousness, which is where our real freedom can be found. This is how Paul says it in Romans 6. And I, I am going to be throwing a lot of references, much more so than we normally do. And I have, I think, most of them listed in notes if you want to grab those on your way out if you didn't on the way in. Romans 6 says, but what fruit were you getting at the time from the things with which you are now ashamed? In other words, that life that you felt free in before, what was it really producing in your life? You, you have shame about it now. So evaluate, go back and say, what was I really freaking out about saying, I want to be free to 
ruin my life. Let me do it. For the end of those things is death. Verse 22. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. In other words, the transfer, the purchase brings us into the realm of freedom because now we've been bonded, we've been linked to Jesus Christ. This idea that freedom to do as you please, when you please, to whom or with whom you please, is not only a fantasy, it's a death sentence. Let me quickly list just kind of five aspects of this life that MacArthur uh, gave me in this book uh, called Slave. And so I'm going to just list them as quickly as I can and, and, and define them. The first aspect of this life of slavery in Christ is exclusive ownership, that you and I are the property of Jesus. Again, this is probably going to be one of those things like, I'm not really sure you should be saying this out loud. Woke culture is going to come in and shut this thing down. Like you shouldn't be saying that we should willingly be somebody else's property. But that's what it means. Exclusive ownership. We're, we're his property. He has control. Titus 2 tells us that God who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It also means complete submission. That we obey without hesitation or complaint. Again, if I'm just taking a job, if I'm just punching in and I don't like my boss, I can kind of be like, I can look for work elsewhere. And this, this metaphor, this, this um, understanding of our relationship to our servant master changes that. That this is complete submission. First John 2 says, and by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's a singular devotion. If I have one master, I don't have to worry about what the other five masters in the marketplace are demanding of their people. I don't have to sit there and say, boy, I hope he's happy. I don't care if he's happy. I only care if this guy that bought me is happy. We carry out the will of the master and no others. Second Corinthians 5, 9 says, so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And you say, well, that sounds like I'm forgetting everybody else. If I say, I don't care if they're happy. The reality is this. The secret is this. If we do the things that most glorify God, we benefit the people around us. He's the one that, that made creation. He knows what, what pleases them, what works uh, for their good and brings them together and all these kinds of things. And if we are following his command, if we are doing his, his commands, then we are taking care of those around us. But what that does is it means I don't put anybody in place of my master. You know, when we're in marriage relationships or in work relationships and we wrestle with, if I do this thing, I don't know if it'll please God. Or if I do this thing that pleases God, I don't know if it's going to please my spouse because they're not on the same page. Having a singular devotion, saying I'm going to please the master only, answers those questions. It answers whether or not you should do that thing at work. If it's going to violate the command of God, you say, I've got a, I've got a single master to obey. It clarifies those things. Singular devotion. A total dependence. If I'm standing in the, in the pen area, if you will, of the marketplace and, and he comes along and he handpicks me and he says, I think you can do my work. You're coming with me. And he pays the price. 
I, I don't have all my, I don't have a bunch of belongings. I don't know where I'm going to be sleeping. That's all on him. He's got to provide that for me. If he wants me to do the job, he said, I'll give you your quarters. I'll give you your nourishment. I'll make sure that you're okay. You see how the imagery starts to come alive for us here. I don't have to worry about my own provisions and making a life for myself if my singular focus is to serve him. Matthew 6 says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? What shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after these things? And your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And lastly, another aspect of this life is one of personal accountability. All that starts to matter to us is our master's appraisal. Not what other people are thinking or what else is going on out there in the town square or anything. No, it just I, I want to make sure that he says you're doing a good job. Romans 14, 12, so that says that each of us will give an account of himself to God. In Matthew 25 is that great passage about um, hearing uh, from the master, well done, good and faithful slave, servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. That is the description of the Christian. And and it's difficult for us to hear that until we see who we're subject to. For the first 15 chapters of this gospel, we've been reintroduced, as it were, to Jesus, his his love and his compassion and his sacrifice and his wisdom and all of those things. And and, and imagine being in that marketplace waiting to get picked and and him with all of his fame and with all of his success and with all those things says, uh, you, I want him right back there. I, I want her over there. You would instantly feel like I, I just dodged a bullet. I think I got the greatest slave master in all the world. In all the universes, we understand our theology. That, that the, op- the, the getting picked and being selected and being paid for by him wouldn't be a burden, wouldn't be a drudgery that once we realized what we were rescued from, we wouldn't say, no, nah, that's not good enough. I want my freedom. I, I want to test the boundaries with somebody else. And that somebody else is our own sin. And that's only ever lied to us and led to death. And Jesus says in verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves. No longer. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. He, he didn't undo the position. He says, I'm not thinking of you referring to you as my slaves. You've been enhanced. You've been, in a sense, promoted if you will. And that word simply means a friend of the court. And and that's not like to the judge. It's literally to the king. The king would have his inner circle of trusted buddies, people that would come in and spend time with him first thing in the morning before even his advisors would come in and his military leaders and others that would get the work done. He spent time with the people that he could trust the most. And if he was a good king, he kept that balance between those that were his friends, but also that they respected him as well as their king. So it wasn't one of those corrupt kingdoms where the friends of the king got away with murder because Jesus wouldn't do that. It's not who he is. 
No, to be a friend of him as king means that you know his secrets, you know what his will is, you know which direction he's bringing everything. He says, you're no longer just slaves, you are friends because yes, you have a job to do and you're going to be serving me, but you're going to do it with knowledge. You're going to know what my vision is, what my purpose is. You're going to know where this is all going because everything the father has told me, I've shared with you. Imagine the privilege you would feel to be a friend of the king and, and know that every morning you're going to have coffee with him and just whatever's on his heart and mind, he's just going to spill it with you and he's going to share it with you. Why? Because he loves you. He wants you to know. Not even so that you can solve his problems or anything. He just wants to share it with you. The mark of being a friend of the king, the mark of being the friend of Jesus is that you know his plans. It's even more than just being close to him because Judas was extremely close to him. We geek out on proximity. We want to be close to the people with the name so that we can tell other people, oh yeah, I was just in a meeting with so-and-so. Or I know this person or I was on the phone with them the other day or something like that. We like proximity. It gives us bragging rights. Jesus doesn't just stop with proximity. He says, no, you're in with me. You're hearing my words. You know my plans and my vision. I'm sharing it all with you. Proximity is good and we are close to Jesus, but it's much deeper intimacy to know what's going on in his head. This is why we can find a deeper identity in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Second point as we move on, try to make up for some time here is that I would encourage us to find a deeper comfort in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think we're getting there already. I think we can see how the relationship, though it is a servant to master relationship, that there are expectations of us, that there are limited, what we would perceive to be as freedoms that we start to understand, but this is a great arrangement. In verse 16, we start to see the selection of the Christian. This is the part that we would want to spend four weeks on and talk about all the nuances of just one word in his, in his phrase here in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. The, um, the Bible study people right now are like synapses are firing and everything. We're talking about matters of election and the sovereignty of God and all these other kinds of things and wanting to settle these debates that have been handed down to us throughout the centuries that nobody conclusively just can kind of say, this is the position uh, full um, uh, without um, any scrutiny because then somebody on the other side will come and poke holes. Yeah, but I read this verse that way and this verse this way. I am going to come to you from a position. I'm going to present it to you this morning. Let the arrows fly later on. I have to run as soon as church is done. And it's not to avoid this conversation, but uh, we're celebrating the installation of Pastor Blaine up in Solon, and I got to get up there. So conveniently, I won't be able to fight with you after service. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Remember we said last week that the, the difficulty that we have with the teaching of Jesus is not because he says things that we can't always understand. He doesn't always speak over our heads or anything. Even in the scriptures, we get the interpretation of his parables. So it isn't so much that we can't wrap our heads around it, but our difficulty is the willingness to accept what he says. In that way, we're very much like his original audience. But he is not being ambiguous with what he is talking to his apostles about. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And in the context of a master going to the market and saying, I hire them, I take them in, I buy them 
to work in my fields, to work in my home or something like that. It makes perfect sense that of his own volition and of his own plan, he said, that one's going to become with me. He's not ambiguous in the meaning. In the same way that someone couldn't volunteer, no one was scrolling through Facebook and said, oh, the king's got an opening for a close friend. I'm sick of sweeping the streets. I'm going to go do that instead. That the king would say, I've only got those in my inner circle that I trust, that I love, that I know. So who did he choose? Well, of course he's talking to the apostles first. They're the immediate context. But then in a couple of chapters, when we get into his prayer to his father in John 17, we're going to see phrases like he says in verse 20, where he says, I don't ask for these only. I don't ask for just those that have walked with me, the 11 that have remained faithful, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so much of the other verses before and after 20 talk a lot about in all of these and all receive these promises. He's not just choosing the apostles as some would say, well, that's, you know, Jesus is just talking about those 11 and that's it. And then we'd have to undo everything we understand from cover to cover of the scripture about God choosing out of his own will to move the events of this world the way he wants them to be. The reality is, is that in our own flesh, if I see myself as he's calling me to be his slave, who chooses that? Who would surrender to that kind of ownership when you think that your other option is a life of full freedom without having to answer to anybody else? There's a lot we could say, and I wish we had more time, honestly, to break down what this is all getting about. But there's a reason that it's important to fuss about this idea of being chosen. Is a reason why it's important for us to take Jesus' words at face value. And it starts with this idea that we would start understanding how privileged we are. That we get to work in the field that Jesus owns. That that we are fed by him in order to do the work. That we've been given a place to put our heads down at night so that we can get up the next day and do the job again. Ephesians 2 tells us that by grace we have been saved through faith. And this is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that none of us can brag about it. He's removed every opportunity that we would have to say, oh, the reason why I follow Christ is because I was smart enough. Somebody mentioned the gospel and presented the gospel, which is the biblical way this happens. I don't understand why people that want to be in the choose camp that Jesus chooses means we don't have to evangelize or pray or anything. That's unbiblical as well. But there's no way that we were smart enough to go, that makes a lot of sense. That's what I'm going to do. In fact, so much of our apologetics and our evangelism and apologetics is a defense for the faith. So many times we think if I just had the right answers to people's questions, they'd follow Jesus. You give them this, this, this perfect answer. I believe the gospel makes a ton of sense, all the sense in the world. You walk them down this logic path. They can't get out of it and they still say, not interested. It wasn't really a pursuit of the brain solely. It's a pursuit of the will. It is a privilege of ours to call him master and Lord. It is also a protection for us because we belong to him. Once he buys us, he owns us. It's up to him on our safety and our nourishment and our and our rest and all of these things. And the scripture says that once you belong in the hand of God, no one's able to pluck you out of his hand. 
And this to me is one of the biggest arguments for why we can't lose our salvation. Remember, Judas walked with Jesus in close proximity, but never surrendered his heart to him. He could walk away. But those of us that, that come to the Lord sincerely with the limited understanding we have and we believe that the Spirit's been calling us and drawing us and we respond to it and we say, okay, Lord, I receive you. Come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins. Set me on a path to follow your will. We have bouts with our sin. We, we wander off the path from time to time. And there's a lot of those in the Christian circles that will say, once you do that, you've given up on the faith. You've lost what was so graciously given to you. But then that would make it, that would reduce it to something I could have earned in the first place. Something I was smart enough to believe or wise enough to comprehend. But instead, once we're owned by Jesus, Nobody, including ourselves, can pluck us out of his hand. Now, if we belong to him, he'll shape us up if we're trying to walk away and trying to leave, right? For our own good, even. And then lastly, I believe that it's for a purpose. The, the benefit and the uh, realization of belonging to him is for a purpose. What, is, what does Jesus say that we would live for his glory? Paul says that we make it our ambition to be um, pleasing to God that we would we would have an opportunity to make sure that our master comes out shining and looking good that his his property is looking great that everything is working well that his servants are all getting along and supporting and upholding one another and looking after one another and finding joy in serving the mission of the master that he's laid out for us you see all of that becomes for his own glory and for his own purpose one of the uh, big criticisms for those that struggle with that phrase, I didn't choose, I, I, you didn't choose me, but I chose you, um, is, is in a sense this thing of like, is God being unfair by only picking those and not picking those and that kind of thing. And there's explanations to that. And one of the simplest ones that people often say is, well, everyone's destined to hell. He's just pulled some from that, from that path or from that conveyor belt or however you want to look at it in those crude terms. But Romans 9 gets a little bit more to the heart of that question, something that I think really is more at the thrust of this message this morning is that we want to be careful to figure to, to not think we can figure God out, that we can impugn him for whatever decisions he may or may not make. Romans 9 says in verse 14 uh, to 20, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For here he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that I might and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? 
Again, the, the point of our message, and I knew we would have to be somewhat brief in this time this morning, is not to answer the mechanical questions of the choosing and the timing of our regeneration and whether we can believe and all the things that I think are very healthy and, and good spiritual exercises for us to dig into. I understand why they're fascinating, those questions, and they're, it's important for us to want to try to answer. But I believe that the bigger point is when you and I are living in a relationship with the Lord where he is our master, he commands us to do what he's what he's called us to do and we understand that because of that command it is coming from the most loving place because that's who he is that's what he's demonstrated and he says i no longer just call you slaves but i call you friends we willingly step into this and say why would i expect to find life anywhere else you know, because he's, he's chosen me, he's bought me out of the slave, the, the, the marketplace of slavery of my sin, and he's freed me to slavery to righteousness. Why would I fight against this? Why wouldn't I celebrate this? If these are Jesus' words to his friends before they're about to get um, pushed away from him, before they're about to witness horror upon horror of his crucifixion before them, and as they themselves will fail to uphold faithfulness to him why would they need to hear this because he's saying this is all on me anything that we do any success that you have any hanging in there that you have is all on me i am lord of lords i am the master i am the one pushing the direction of this if this were up to you peter as soon as you fail you'd be like oh i must not have really been in him But to help him understand, I picked you, I plucked you, I own you, I possess you. That would bring Peter back from his failure so quickly where Jesus comes and sends the angel and says, go tell the disciples and Peter that he's still in the game. Go tell him that he's been restored, that he's still a part of this whole thing. When our hearts get weary, when our hearts get faint, we start to look inwardly and say this, I'm really failing at this. I'm no good. Why would Jesus keep me? Why would he, why would he allow me to still represent his name? And he says, because I have a plan for your future. I purchased you with the end in mind. I know that you can bring me glory. I know that you can do the work and I'm here to take care of you to see you through. So it becomes an incredibly profound and encouraging relationship and a viewpoint on this relationship that we otherwise wouldn't experience if we just resisted this. I don't, I'm nobody's slave. I'm nobody's servant. If we give that up and embrace it instead, we're brought into the inner circle. He finishes our section by saying, I called you and appointed you in verse 16 so that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the father in my name, whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. He says, I appointed you. That's a very kind of like I gave you the assignment. Not only did I select you, but I appointed you to go. I'm giving you a commission. I'm not just building a a group of people to hang out in the court with me as king so that we can all feel good about ourselves. this, This kingdom is moving forward and you have a role to play. So I'm appointing you and I'm giving you the work to do so that you can go. And when you go in my name, you will bear fruit that will stick. Remember, we talked about abiding in him, that it will remain. 
And another phrase that we would love to spend weeks on is that so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. But when we see it in this complex, in this context, just treat it simply. If I'm, if I'm in the courtyard of the king, and I, and he's my master and he's, he's saying, these are the plans that I have. This is the direction that I'm going. Then the things that I start to ask him about support that mission. The things that I start to talk to him about are, are I know are in the direction that he intends to go. Why? Because he's sharing the inside information with me. He's not saying we're going to go over here and conquer this territory and do all this kind of stuff. And then I'm going to walk up and say, Hey, Jesus, I was wondering if you'd give me a new puppy. We're not talking about puppies. We're talking about moving over here and do it. It would be silly for us to ask all these. Well, I said in Jesus name, can I have a puppy in Jesus name, please. I don't care how many times you drop my name in your request. We're not doing puppies. We're moving forward in a direction. A kingdom builds this way. Nothing wrong with asking God for a puppy, by the way, but just be careful about when and how. And don't just throw Jesus name on it like it's going to work. These things I command you so that you will love one another. You think Jesus is a little hopped up on love? John's hopped up on love. He records everything it seems to be that Jesus has said about love. His epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John incorporate, especially 1st John, all this thing about um, that, that we would love one another as he loved us and demonstrate our love for him by loving one another. This is what it means to be the servant and the friend of the king, for him to be our master. And that we would want to represent his love well. That we would live as sacrificial people. Not hopped up on arrogance just because we're in the inner circle with the king. But we understand our mission to show love well. Would you please stand and let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, there. this is one of those messages where I kind of wonder if I've said a bunch of things. That if I heard it without having studied it all week. If I would understand it or agree with it. So, Lord, I just ask your spirit to do with it what you will, Lord. And I do pray, God, that you would help us to understand with all the freedoms you've given us, with all of the joy that you've supplied this life, that this language of of being your slave is not a drudgery, Lord. It's a great gift and freedom. It's one that sparks our joy and our praise, Lord. We understand that. It's just hard for us to accept out of the gate, God, because something in our flesh says we want to answer for ourselves. We want to build our own kingdom. We want to run it our own way. And so, Lord, you've got such work to do in us to cause us to trust you more, to to rest in your promise that you're doing a work to include us and to build us up in it. And, Lord, as we learn to love our fellow servants and and start to um, understand that they're under those same burdens at times of wrestling with their flesh. And sometimes it comes out in ways they wouldn't wish or be proud of, Lord, that we can bear up under that with them with patience and show them support and love. Help us, God, to be that body of believers that represents your sacrificial love well. May it be our marker. May we be people who love and obey. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.